I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'd like for you to think about uh, this question. Uh, what's the most extreme thing you've ever done to try to fit in? Over the course of your life, some of you have been around for a while, some of you not so long, but what's one of the most extreme things you've ever done to fit in? I was thinking about this for myself, and uh, seventh grade was a big year. I grew up in Nashua, and our school system was set up where you went to elementary school through sixth grade, right? And so I spent a year as king of the school. Then you went to seventh grade. Uh, we had three junior highs uh, in Nashua, and uh, so my junior high brought in three or so uh, various elementary schools. So now all of a sudden I'm in school with a bunch of people that I didn't know. And I, I imagine that first day, first couple days, I showed up and was dressed in, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure all elementary school I was wearing either shorts or like athletic pants, right? Nothing super special. But uh, I quickly discovered that, I mean, there's such a thing as brand consciousness, right? At some point, you, as a, as a, as a kid growing up, you learn brands are important. And, um, and so in an effort to, to fit in, I, I, I saved a bunch of my money and went to the Pheasant Lane Mall and bought myself my first pair of Z Cavarici pants. Um, how many of you remember? How many of you remember these, right? Uh, just to be clear, that, that's, that's not a picture of me at any point in my life. Uh, but those are some pants that I, I know you probably didn't think I was this fashion conscious. Uh, but clearly I was, I was something. I spent $70 on those pants, that first pair. $70. I mean, this is th like, maybe that's not a lot now. I don't know. But that 35 years ago, that's a lot of money, you know, for a kid in seventh grade. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's like it's the kind of thing everybody's wearing. I want to fit in. So, I, you know, I start changing uh, what I was wearing so that I wouldn't look like a person that didn't belong. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that I did not um, cater to when the peer pressure came. I was at a birthday party uh, for one of our neighborhood friends. It was just, it was all, it was all boys. Um, I, I don't remember how old I was, but probably, I'm guessing, fifth, sixth grade, probably sixth grade. At some point, somebody had this great idea that all the guys, everybody there, should drop their drawers for the purpose of comparing whatever you might find there. And um, a bunch of them did it. Not this guy, though, right? I, didn't, I did not do that. Right? I, I didn't want to fit in that badly. But probably the worst thing that I ever, the worst thing I think I ever did, that I can remember anyway, again, seventh grade, <laughs> I mean, you know, going to like middle school or junior high, that first year, tough one, right? Um, so we had a, our phys ed teacher um, wasn't around for the first two or three weeks, and there was a rumor going around about why uh, they weren't there. It was a pretty sexually explicit rumor. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I heard the rumor, and then like everybody was kind of talking about it, laughing about it, joking about it. And so, again, in an effort to fit in, I found myself retelling the story that I heard. Um, unfortunately, I, uh, I was a little naive. I didn't really understand some of the terminology that was being used, and so I ended up not using it properly and quickly got discovered that I didn't know what I was talking about. But. So I don't know about you, but like we do things, right? Because we, we want to fit in somewhere. We want to find a place where we belong, where we don't stick out. 
you know, you don't want to be the only person in a room where you feel like you don't, you're the one person that doesn't belong in the room. We don't, if there's something to know, none of us wants to be the person, the only person that doesn't know what everybody else knows. Um, and so the way that we start to perceive or think about how other people think about us, it actually starts to affect the way we think about ourselves, right? And very easy for us to develop uh, an inferiority complex uh, based on what we think others are thinking about us. And, and so then we can, because of all of that, we can actually start becoming foolish. We, we, we can start doing things that are very, very foolish. Um, uh, you know, Z Cavarici pants may seem innocent enough, but like just the, the reality that I had kind of embraced and had my desires being manipulated so that I would conform and fit in. I mean, there is something pretty, um, there's something pretty troubling uh, about that. Again, it may manifest in ways that are more or less innocent, but the reality that we, at any point in time in our lives, find ourselves having to, you know, to, to try to fit in, to do something that is outside of ourselves is certainly problematic. Um, now, if I could for a moment, like specifically speak to those of you who are Christians, um, like when this creeps into our life of faith, like we can end up living a life that has a very, very shallow set of beliefs, right? Um, when, when we're struggling to conform ourselves or to maintain, you know, certain associations or to, to, to just do everything we can to not be the one that sticks out or that doesn't belong, we can end up, as Christians, we can end up with a, a kind of life that is exhibiting some pretty shallow beliefs. And if we, as a church, as a group of Christian people, um, if, if we have shallow beliefs, right, if we don't have deeply held convictions, things that we truly believe and, um, and, and uh, these things that form a basis kind of for our, our lives. Like if, if, if we're just shallow and superficial, as I'm afraid many people who call themselves Christians can be, then we're only, we're only going to be able to portray an extremely unattractive version of Christianity. Like, let me just tell you something that's true about uh, the world's perception of the church a lot of times, and, and that is that the church has very, very little to offer it, right? There are people that are in this world that when they think about things like religion or religious people, when they think about the church and the people that go to church, because there has been so much superficiality, because there's been so much shallowness and lack of conviction in the lives of people who call themselves Christians— Many people just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, I, I really don't need that. Like, last thing I need is to just uh, bother myself with giving up a really nice Sunday morning and going and hanging out with a bunch of people that act like they believe something or talk like they believe something, but don't actually live out those beliefs. So um, let's look for, uh, as we close out chapter three this morning, um, I want to read a few verses and then we'll talk about, you know, kind of close out, I think, Paul's thought here on this, this matter of, uh, of wisdom and foolishness. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 
Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders. For everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So again, what we're going to talk about today is what we're called here, um, if you've been journeying along with us, you know Paul's had a lot to say about these, these two things that are opposed to one another. One, he describes as the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of this age or human wisdom. And that kind of as something oppo- as opposed to God's wisdom, which Like the idea that there would be any difference between these things should not be surprising to us, right? Because when we talk about something like the world's wisdom or human wisdom, we know that we're talking about a set of wisdom or a set of knowledge that's limited, right? Because you and I, we're finite. We don't know everything. So how can we, even if we like take the collective intelligence that is in this room or even in the entire world, how can we expect to ever arrive at the fullness of knowledge and wisdom? We couldn't. And so when you compare the wisdom that the world is capable of producing, of generating in and of itself, and contrast that with the wisdom of God, you're obviously going to have two very, very different things because God himself is infinite, eternal, limitless, all-knowing, all-wise, all-seeing right? And so there is a difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. Now what Paul says here is that the appearance of wisdom, for a person who's a Christian, the appearance of wisdom needs to be exchanged for genuine wisdom. The appearance of wisdom is exchanged for genuine wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 18 says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. You see that there's this exchange that Paul's inviting us into. To exchange my limited and finite wisdom for the wisdom of God. What is ultimately genuine, real wisdom. Now what we have to understand is true about every single one of us in order to understand how this exchange is important. We have to understand one thing that is true about all of us, and that is that we are all deluded, right? Every single one of us is, in varying degrees, deluded. Um, We come into this world and grow in our consciousness into some degree of delusion. You know what I mean by that? Right? You're born into this world, and then as an infant grown into a toddler, into your preschool years and childhood and adulthood, right? All through that, like, we encounter streams of consciousness, random sets of input that are all bombarding us, right? We know what it's like, you know, for a little kid to begin discovering the world around them, right? They're just like a sponge, kind of absorbing everything. And so this is why, this is why we all end up with a very, very different set of experiences, of life experiences. This is where a lot of times when 
uh, we have conversations with one another, we find ourselves coming from very, very different places. Why is that? Well, it's because the environment that one person grew up can be very, very different from the environment another person grew up in, right? And those environments and what was spoken and what was taught and what was modeled, all of these things contribute to how we are formed into what we become, right? So the reality is you and I, we all sit here, a product, right? We have been formed into what we are. And the truth is, and this might be hard for some people to understand, but probably not. The truth is every single one of us is under some degree of delusion. I mean, think about it. Have you ever, have you ever thought something in one particular way? And then, for whatever reason, a light came on or somebody pointed something out or you sat in a class or you read something and now you saw that thing that you once thought was true completely different? Right, why is that? Well, it's because at one point you were under a delusion regarding that particular thing, right? And so, again, as finite, limited in our capacity human beings, we all suffer from this problem of delusion. This is what we bring to the table, every single one of us. Now, there needs to be, for a person, um, and we've been talking about this now for several weeks, the message of the gospel, right, the message of the cross, the priority of the cross, of Christ crucified on the cross for us, that message, which Paul describes is foolishness to the world, but is the wisdom of God. Like, that is a thing that every one of us who become a Christian at some point need to encounter and engage, right? So, um, like, just speaking for myself, I can say at some point, I had to come and embrace the foolishness of the gospel. That is, I had to exchange other ways of thinking about and seeing the world for now, what God has revealed is the way I ought to see the world. Does that make sense? Right? So um, that's, that's, that's an experience, right, that can happen. But guess what? It's an experience that is an ongoing process for all of our lives. Why? Well, while on the one hand, we bring delusion to the table as human beings, the truth is, Delusion is one of those old habits that dies hard, right? We will constantly find ourselves snapping back, right? Like a rubber band, right? You stretch that rubber band, right? You let go of it, what happens? It snaps back to its original shape. And you and I, we have, while we are, as people, we can be malleable, right? We can, um, we can change, uh, we can be transformed, thankfully. But there's certain habits that are ingrained in us that often die hard. And so we'll find ourselves kind of often going back to the way we were. And so this, this defeating delusion is a constant thing that we have to do throughout our lives. Like right now, at this very moment, there are certain delusions that I might find myself under. I mean, if that weren't true, then God might as well just take me home, right? Like what else do I got to do here? Right, if I got it all figured out, right? So this is an ongoing process. And what Paul says is, listen, what people in the world do is they settle for something like the appearance of wisdom. How many of you know that? I mean, there's a lot of ways that wisdom appears in our world. There's a lot of people that profess to be 
the bearers of wisdom, right? And we empower them. We give them responsibility. Um, we, uh, we look to them for leadership a lot of times. We yield ourselves in a lot of cases to those that we think are um, the wise among us. But a lot of times it's just an appearance of wisdom. And Paul says, I want you to exchange the appearance of wisdom for genuine wisdom. Let me explain it this way. Um, and this is just another confession for you from me this morning. Uh, that has to do with me and dancing, okay? But I have never danced. I've never danced. And with every year that passes, the likelihood of me ever dancing is growing smaller and smaller and smaller. Right? Anybody else like that? Anybody else here? Never danced? All right. A couple brave souls there, right? Like, what are the odds that all of a sudden things are going to change and you're just going to let loose on the dance floor, right? Because you can't hold it back, right? I mean, the odds are already slim and they're growing slimmer and slimmer as the years go by. You know why? Well, because uh, and some of you who have been dancing for a long time, you understand this. Um, in order to become a dancer, uh, you have to get over the idea of looking foolish, Right? And for many of you, the reason why you dance now is because you might have entered the scene of dancing when you didn't care about looking foolish. Right? I mean, kids, they don't care. Right? And so if a kid's, like, you know, constantly dancing, right, and, like, grows up doing that and just kind of growing into that, they might become a really good dancer without ever even thinking about it. You know, maybe they even go to dance classes, things like that. Right? But, like, they're good dancers. So that's not me. It'd take, a lot, it'd take a lot for me to get there to be a good dancer. And so, you know, as a person that doesn't want to play the part of a fool, really good chance. You're never going to see me dance. Um, but here's the interesting thing about dancing. How many of you know the law of the jumbotron? Anybody ever been to like a professional sports game, you know, like professional basketball game or semi-professional, right? They have the big jumbotron in the middle. And during one of the breaks, right, the cameras are roving around the crowd. Who are they looking for? Are they looking for people that are just sitting there quietly minding their own business? No, they're looking for somebody that's got their jig on, right? And isn't it funny how, I mean, think about this. You know, the camera focuses, and like there's, there's something in you, there's something in me that looks at that person that's kind of acting foolishly, and we're like, what a fool, right? Like that's the, that's the initial thought that you have in your mind, right? But then the camera focuses on them and all of a sudden the people around that person, they see that they're on the jumbotron. They start freaking out. Then the, the guy, the girl, they, they see that they're on the jumbotron. What do they do? They go all in, right? They just lose it. And what happens? They're a hero, right? They become the hero of the jumbotron, right? People are asking for autographs after the game is over from that person, right? This person who, while a more muted form of what they were doing might have been something to sneer and scoff at when they just go all in on it. Isn't it funny how we, like, jump in? I'm like, I'm not going to jump in and do it, but, I mean, I'm going to smile and, you know, and, and be entertained by such a thing. See, if I'm ever going to be a dancer, I have to give something up, right? I have to give up 
I have to give up whatever this thing is that I'm kind of like holding on to, right? This thing that I would have to get over to get to a place where I could, you know, start to move. I know some of you think it's like, he's about to do it. I'm not, all right? So just relax, relax. I'm not. So the message of the cross, which again, the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world, it requires that we give up our own wisdom. To embrace what happened at the cross. To embrace what it means that our king was crucified. Means that we have to give up our own wisdom. We have to give up our own way of doing things. And this is why you see, a lot of times, you'll see a person who becomes a follower of Jesus all of a sudden changing things about their lives. Or why you'll find that there is a difference between a lot of what times what a Christian, how a Christian looks at some particular thing and how a non-Christian might look at some particular thing. You know, I was thinking, like, in the, um, just as an example, uh, when it comes to things like uh, sexuality, right, the, the ethics that a Christian brings into the conversation regarding sexuality are going to often be very, very different from the ethics that the wisdom of this world might bring into that conversation, right? I saw this played out when I was having a con- I had a conversation um, uh, with a lady one time, and, and, uh, and, and I, I, don't know, I don't know how we got onto the topic or whatever, but like my idea of something like, okay, well, the way, the way we enter into an intimate relationship with another person, like the way that's designed is that... Um, you know, a man and a woman, they, 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 they are romantically attracted to one another and they enter into a kind of a relationship where they become prominent to one another, right? And like sort of um, everybody else is kind of way down the list. And, and then maybe they covenant with one another through marriage to, to, uh, to live together for the rest of their lives. And then they go and they live together, right? That's, that, 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 that would be a pretty simplistic way of kind of demonstrating the Christian's view of um, one matter of sexual ethics. This person, right, who's not a Christian that I'm talking to, uh, she said, I would never dream of marrying somebody that I didn't live with beforehand? Like, the, the idea was just utterly foreign, right? This, the, the, that two people, without first having tried out and tested their relationship by living together um, for, you know, for a period of time and then figuring out, it's like, okay, I, you know, I, this is going to work or probably is going to work. Let's get married, right? There's just a, there's a very big difference between the way, you know, these things might be seen, right? And so one might, well, it makes perfect sense. Like, I get it. I, I get where she's coming from, right? And I, um, I mean, I know, I know the statistics, right? I, I know how it all works. And I, like, yeah, I, I can see it. Um, but, you know, is this the wisdom of the world talking as opposed to the wisdom of God? Now, when it comes to things like our, our money, uh, I'm, I'm part of a, you know, big group of golfers and um, we, you know, we have this email for us, probably a hundred guys on this thing. I don't know. And so an email went out asking for everybody in our group 
to contribute to this organization that's doing some cool stuff in, in, in town here. And so a lot of people chimed in and says, like, yeah, great organization. I'm going to give something. And, and so um, it's like, okay, well, you know, the, the wisdom of the world suggests that, you know, you and I who have, have experienced blessing and privilege, we ought to share you know, from what we have with others who might have needs, right? And so that's why people, whether they're Christians or not, give charitably um, a lot of times. And, you know, wouldn't it have been interesting if I chimed into that email thread and I said, hey, guys, I have a better idea. Like, let me tell you what I do as a Christian. I, I give 10% of everything that I earn right off the top. I give it away. And then, like, and as far as I'm concerned, like, that's just the starting point. Really, I ought to be, I'm, I'm called to be even more generous than that. Because a Christ, as a Christian, everything I have belongs to the Lord. And I'm just a steward of it. And someday I'm going to stand before him, and I'm going to have to tell him what I did with what he gave me. And I, I you know, I want to have, I, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be all red in the face, you know, when I have to have that conversation with my master. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I know, like, some, it, the idea that anybody, um, you know, certainly like just normal people with normal income, that anybody would give away 10% or more of their income. Like, anybody else? Don't raise your hands. But like, anybody else think that's just, that's nuts, right? Of course it's nuts, right? I know some of you are following Jesus and you're thinking, that's nuts, right? Like, how could I ever do that, right? Because um, <laughs> we just, we're having a conversation yesterday and, uh, you know, I've got young adults and, and man, they're just, they're like scared to death to go out in the world today, right? The thought of what it's going to take what it's going to cost, how, like, how they're ever going to support themselves. So I get it. Like, there's the idea that somehow a person could make that kind of thing work. It just seems crazy and utterly foreign. But again, we're talking about a disparity between the way the world looks at things, which is, hey, you know, um, after you've taken care of all of your needs and obligations, right, and probably a lot of your wants as well, if you've got a little left over, you know, can you— can you help a brother out and send 20 bucks down this way, right? Can you, you know, maybe write a check for 50 bucks or 100 bucks to this organization, right? That's, that's, that, that can be a form of the world's idea of, of generous living where, you know, the Christian might say, man, generous living is just, it's giving everything I have back to God, seeing everything that I have as belonging to God. So anyway, there's this exchange that needs to take place between the wisdom of the world for the wisdom of God. And we see this, this pattern happening over and over again. I mean, think about, and I love, I love the image of Jesus calling Peter, James, and John, right, from the lives that they were living. There they are, you know, tending to their nets, doing what fishermen do. They're fishing, right? As far as they were concerned, this was their life. This was the rest of their lives, right, as fishermen. That's what they were going, that's what they were, that's what they were going to be for the rest of their lives. Jesus comes along and he says, hey guys, I want you to exchange your nets, your poles, your boats, whatever they were using for fishing. I want you to come and follow me. And you get that picture? Like Jesus invites them into a life of following him. And they had to leave something. They had to exchange what they had in order to embrace what Jesus had for them. Matthew, the tax collector, he had to walk away from a very lucrative career in order to follow Jesus. Paul, the guy who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he had to leave a life of privilege, prosperity, and power in order to go and follow after Jesus. So here's the issue. The world's wisdom is often misaligned with God's wisdom, right? They're, they're out of sync with one another. Paul says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 
Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. In comparison, it is inferior. The wisdom of the world is inferior to God. Again, no surprise, right? Because we're talking about the limited capacity in the wisdom that we can produce and generate ourselves compared with the wisdom of God. But have you ever wondered why these two sets of wisdom are so out of sync? Like, that's what I was thinking about. It's like, well, why, why, is, there, why is there this disconnect? Why is there something that's so different when we're talking about the world's way of seeing things and God's way of seeing things? I mean, if God created the world, and if God created all of us, right, which we believe, why is there not more congruence between the way we see the wisdom of this world aligning with the wisdom of God? Why is there, in fact, we actually see a misalignment? Why is that? I think the reason, quite simply, is we have a spiritual problem. We have a spiritual problem. Every single one of us. Again, talk about what we bring to the table. What we bring to the table as human beings who are spirit, embodied in flesh, we have a spiritual problem. We know we have physical problems, right? My list gets longer and longer as the days go by. We know we have physical problems, but we have spiritual, we have a spiritual problem. And this is our starting point. This is where we, this is where we come from. Um, the Bible contains a story, right? You read through the Bible, it contains a story. And uh, I, if we can go back to, you know, when we learn uh, like about like literature, higher literature, things like that, you know that in a, in a really good story, you have certain characters, right? There is uh, the protagonist who is the lead character in the story, oftentimes the hero, sometimes the villain, but the lead character in the story, and then you have the antagonist, right? And the antagonist is the one who's opposed to or is opposing the protagonist. It's the thing that makes a story. And so in Scripture, what we have is we have a narrative that unfolds before us, and what we like to think is that the Bible is a story about us, and we make ourselves the protagonist, where really the story is about God, it's the unfolding revelation of who God is. And the antagonist in the story is this thing that, like Paul would use the words, the world. The system of the world, the way of the world, the wisdom of the world that is in opposition to God as the protagonist. But listen to how we come into the world as human beings. You and I, like, so I come into the world where I and the protagonist of my story. And you come into the world as the protagonist of your story. What does that mean? It means I come into the world and I am the lead character. Thank you very much, right? And so do you. You come into the world and you are the lead character in your story. I'm the hero, you're the hero, right? That's, 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 the, that's how we come into the, this is the spiritual problem that every one of us has is we come in with a commitment to our own story. If we see God, many of us, and some of you have experienced this, God is something more like an antagonist 
in your story, right? For some people, the idea of God, who God is, what God is, would seem something more like an obstacle in that person's story. Rather than seeing how, oh, you know what? I'm not, in fact, the lead character in any of this. What is actually happening is the unfolding revelation of the story of God. And I'm just a little tiny character. As are you. Right? So this is the spiritual problem. Like, we've turned upside down the way things actually are. And so now what we do is we... um, We commit ourselves to our own wisdom... What Paul describes as the wisdom of this age that manifests itself as self-assurance in our own striving. What we do, the way we carry on our lives is according to our own wisdom, we assure ourselves that we are going to live this life through our own striving. Right? The, The wisdom approach of this world is that life is all about striving to make it. And that's where a lot of us find ourselves today in a place where we're just striving to make it. This has been the case for every single human being who's ever walked the face of this earth. For countless billions, especially those who, you know, didn't get to benefit from the more modern days and conveniences. I mean, for many of them, life was just literally about survival. It was literally about finding the next thing that they were going to eat that was going to keep them from starving to death. Or putting together enough shelter to keep them safe from all of the... um, uh, the, the dangerous things that were, you know, kind of lurking around the world. People still live like that. There are, there are millions, millions, and millions of people who are living, striving just to survive. Then there are those who are striving to become free from whatever is oppressing them, right? Like right now, at this very moment, there are those who are living under oppression. And for them, life is all about striving to break free from that which is currently oppressing them. For some, uh, they've experienced a trauma or multiple traumas in their lives. And now life is all about striving to just get through the next few moments or the next day, right? Because there are constant reminders. They keep bringing them back to that trauma and they're experiencing things like PTSD and it's paralyzing. But here they are just striving to kind of go along. There are those who are striving to keep what they have, right? Some of us, the truth of our story is that we have, and we have so much, and we are working so hard to keep our fists clenched around those things that we're so desperately trying to preserve. There are those who live with a sense that there's nothing but scarcity in this world, and they begin living these lives of greed, looking to just get as much as they can because there's not enough to go around. Again, these are just a few ways that we as human beings bring this spiritual disorder into our world, striving to live our lives. Paul says, I want you to exchange that. Right? Because the message of the cross is that the striving needs to cease. The message of the cross teaches us that the striving is over. Jesus has already done all the striving, and now he invites us to come and to forsake the wisdom of this world and the world's way of going after life and embrace what we find at the cross. But here's the challenge. The challenge is that the more trust we put into the cross, the more foolish we just might look. 
Paul says, so let no one boast in human leaders. Right, Paul was specifically addressing a concern that he had for the church in Corinth. He's like, and this kind of bringing this to a conclusion, he's like, come on, guys. No more of this. The way you're being is upsetting what God wants to do in and through your lives and through your church. Right, Paul here, in these verses that we read, utters these three imperative commands. Number one, let no one deceive himself. Number two, let, no one, or let him become a fool. And number three, let no one boast in human leaders. He's saying this is dividing your hearts. It was dividing your church. It is turning your church into a place that has nothing more to offer the world than what the world already has to offer. Here's what's true about so much of the church today. And if we're not careful, what will be true of us as well? Listen, the world has lots of ways that people can find community, can find a sense of belonging. The world has lots of ways of being. But those ways of the world, they're never going to invite somebody to the foot of the cross. You'll only find that in the church. You'll only find that where the gospel is being proclaimed. But if we're just, if we're a community of people where our hearts are divided, right, where we're living a, a shallow, superficial kind of belief, where we're the kind of people that look like we say we believe one thing, but we're actually kind of living quite another thing. Listen, there's, there's all kinds of places in the world where you can find that. We don't need that in the church. Like who's going who's gonna to say, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give up a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night or, you know, whatever, whatever I happen to be the rhythms of like what it means to be a part of a church community. Who's going to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'll jump into that just to get more of what I can already get, you know, in probably other places that are a lot more fun. I mean, let's be honest. And so I want to ask you this morning, like, what does it look like for you to become a fool? What does it look like for me to become a fool? For some of us, you know, if we've found ourselves reverting back to some more diluted form of living, what does it mean for us to become a fool again? What if, what if we started living like what Paul describes here, like everything is ours? He closes with, so let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. He says, everything is yours. Remember, here we are, striving for as much as we can get, clutching and grabbing and clawing our way, striving through this life. And Paul says, hey, 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 everything is yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, like, these are all gifts of the church, right? These, these things that were actually dividing the church. Paul says, these are all gifts to the church. I'm afraid that, you know, a lot of people, they, when they think of Christianity, they think of a whole bunch of churches all spread out around a town, right, that all believe a bunch of different things and can't even get along with one another. And, and I'm afraid that a lot of times they might, in fact, be right. But we ought to have a better view of what the church is. 
Like, if we just think about our little town here, right? Like, I know that at Calvary Baptist, there's some cool things going on with a new building and a school and, you know, exciting things there. You know what that is? That's the kingdom of God expanding. And while it might be easy, you know, sometimes to kind of look with a little jealousy, a little, man, I wish, you know, I wish cool stuff like that was happening here. No, how about we celebrate what God's doing through the gifts that he's blessed another place with? And you think of Pastor Jonah and um, Mercy Chapel down that way, right? Thank God for what God's doing as he's expanding his kingdom through the lives of people who are committing themselves to him. And yeah, you know what? It's easy sometimes. It's sometimes to, to, to be a little jealous, to think, oh man, you know, that person used to come to church here. Now they go to church there, right? I mean, this is, this is welcome to the life of the church, right? Where sometimes the pieces just kind of move from place to place. And it's easy. It's easy for a person, like especially in my position, you know, to, to feel very badly. It, it can be very disorienting. And instead, what I need to do is I need to like, uh, like that's the way of the world, right? The world is about competition. The world is about who's got the most people, who's got the best music. Ethan, we got the best music, right? We got that going for it. No. Right? That's what the world's about. Who's got the best facility? Who's got the best programs? Paul says, it's all yours. It all is a gift to the church. He goes on to say, everything is yours. The world is yours. Come on, let's stop clutching and grabbing for our little piece of the world. When, when we come to the cross and when we embrace Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, and our King, he gives us the whole world. Paul says, life is yours. Not, not the fictitious, superficial, little life that so many people settle for, thinking that they're living. But real life, life that is lived with purpose and intent, life that is going somewhere, life that has an object in mind. He says that life is yours. He says death is yours. Who wants death? What? Like, I don't want, death is mine? Yeah, Paul says death is yours. What does he mean? Well, I'll tell you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then death is nothing but something to fear, right? Because death marks the end. Death says, that's it. For the person that's following Jesus, death is only a reminder. And the reason why we have an interest in death is because we see it as the necessary means to our full and eternal rest, right? That death is not the final chapter it's not the end to our story. It's not like it is for some, the cessation of existence. It is the beginning of eternal life. And so even death is yours or things present or things to come, Paul says. Everything is yours. What if we actually started living like everything was in fact ours? What if you and I started living as if Jesus' death actually had personal significance? I don't mean like something that, you know, I can, I can respond with the right answer, you know, knowledge-wise. But what if, 
What if Jesus' death had real personal significance for me? What if it was something that actually drew me in closer to where he is? What if it was something that helped me to understand better the real heart of God? What if I believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? I mean, like that he really rose. Like I know a lot of you are going to go to church on Easter. But what if we believe Jesus really rose? What if, it's going to get a little foolish in here. What if we really believe that Jesus was in fact coming back again? As the eternal king to fully bring in his kingdom. What if we actually, what if we really believe that and begin living as if we really believe that? What if our beliefs were lived out so radically that while on the one hand there may be those who mock and scoff and sneer, right, because of the foolishness that we have relegated ourselves to? What if we live so radically that while there may be those who might sneer, there would be others who would find themselves being drawn in like, remember the Jumbotron hero. Yeah, for a moment, he looked like an idiot. But man, once, once he went all in, <laughs> once he just cut loose, it was something. I'm afraid that as Christians, a lot of times we have this tendency to kind of want to live our lives just somewhere in the middle. You know, like, okay, yeah, I'll be a Christian, but I'll be a Christian to a point where it's not going to really cost me anything. Like nobody's, like the truth is nobody even really notices because there's just not that much of a difference between the life that I'm living as a follower of Jesus and the life of the person who has nothing to do with Jesus. What if we started living, in fact, like everything was ours instead of living in the middle, shallow, superficial, 